Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 31 and 32. You can find this on page 592 in the Black Pew Bibles. I'm going to be reading a few texts in chapter 31 and 32, and I'll prompt us as we go through. That's Isaiah 31, beginning in verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and reply and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirits. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. Verse 6. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, Everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. Chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in the dry place, like the shade of a great rock and the weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The hearts of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. Verse 14. For the palace is forsaken, the uh, populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. This is God's word. So keep your Bibles open there at Isaiah 31, 32. And understand that the uh, prophet, as he addresses the people then, what we've just read is part of a sermon that he has uh, preached to the people. It begins in chapter 31 with the word woe, so it's a negative sermon, at least at the beginning. It's rather worrying to hear that word woe. It's a worrying woe at the beginning of the sermon. And uh, the, the gist of his sermon basically are two questions that he wants to ask them that I want to ask you, uh, that we are asked by God's Word ourselves this morning. These questions are these, what are you trusting and where are you looking? What are you trusting? 
Where are you looking? As we look back, as we read ourselves back into this section, we remind ourselves that in the Old Testament in particular, God is dealing with humanity at a very hands-on, day-to-day, work-and-war kind of existence. His people then were a nation-state. They're not that today. They're a church today. But nonetheless, they are His people. And the ways in which, in the very rough-and-tumble world in which they lived, they deal with Him and He deals with them is in Scripture meant to instruct us. Everything in the former Scriptures, the New Testament tells us, was written for our learning. So that in that very real political world of military and war and so on, we might understand the invisible realm in which we operate as the children of God today, that there is real warfare. It may not be physical warfare, but it's real warfare with an enemy, the evil one. And there are real battles to be fought, and there are real lessons to be learned. So when we read, for example, that Judah, southern Israel, Judah, back then in the days of Isaiah, they're the audience, they're the congregation to whom he has been sent to preach, are facing this great massive threat to their existence. They have two choices. Either they put their faith in earthly alliances, or they put their faith in heavenly promises. When you boil it down to that, you understand that they're not really very far removed from the kind of choices that you and I meet and face day and daily. Either we look for the answer in earthly things or in heavenly things, in alliances or in aids or or, or supports or helps elsewhere, or we look to God and to God alone. In fact, the whole history of Judah and Israel is generally represented as part of God's revelation of Himself to humanity. This is what God is like. This is how He operates. This is how He conducts His relationships, especially with His own people. And as we look at the relationship between Israel and Judah and God, we understand that basic fundamental to that relationship is the issue of faith. Isaiah has been underlining that right throughout this first part of Isaiah. If you were to ask me, what is the big lesson of the first section of Isaiah, I would say it's this. That we get into a relationship with God by faith, and we stay in a relationship with God by faith. That faith puts me right with God, and faith becomes the very principle by which I am to live my life. I am to walk by faith, not by sight. And it's right at this crux that Isaiah's sermon takes on a very practical and personal and uh, confrontational tone as he challenges them. If you look at verse 6, he challenges the people, turn to him, turn to him whom people have deeply revolted or from whom people have deeply revolted. So he's addressing a people who should know better. He's addressing a people who don't believe, who don't believe God. They say they believe God, but in practice they don't believe God. 
And as Isaiah begins his sermon, he wants to show them, watch this, he wants to show them what unbelief does. He tells them, for example, number one, that unbelief makes us rebels. Unbelief makes us rebels. That's what verse 6 is saying. These are people he's addressing who have deeply revolted against their God. You notice that he makes it a very general statement. He is thinking of the people in front of him. He's thinking of Judah. He's thinking of people who are professed believers who have deeply revolted against God. But he's thinking more generally. When, when we do that, when people who are believers act as if or talk as if they don't believe in God, what are they doing? They're doing what everybody else does. They are like the rest of humanity. Humanity, by and large, has revolted, deeply revolted against the God who made them. And so there's this fundamental thing. They have deeply revolted. In what way have they deeply revolted against God, these believers? Well, in this way. They have given God their heart's trust. But when they found themselves in a time of trial or trouble or difficulty, when, when the pressure has been on them in their lives, when they're now facing this threat from outside of them, rather than simply trusting God, they are looking around themselves to find something else that they can call in to help them and to secure their own security and safety. In other words, right at the very beginning, we discover that the heart of human rebellion against God is not trusting God. In fact, this is what differentiates or should differentiate the church from the world. In uh, that great letter about faith, uh, Galatians, one of the earliest letters, if not the earliest letter that Paul wrote, we find him talking to these new believers, and he uses this language in Galatians chapter 4 and verse uh, 8. He, he says, formerly, that is before you became Christians, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who are by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. You see, he recognizes that they have been brought out of a particular world and worldview in which you do what you can to help yourself. You find yourself in times of trouble. Then you don't wait for Mother Mary to come to you. You go out and you try and resolve the problem yourself. Oblique reference to a Beatles song there for those that didn't notice. That's the... That's, that's the thing that Isaiah is addressing here. He is addressing where, where have you put your trust? Where are you looking? And what do we discover about these people? Here's what they're doing. Here's God's charge in verse 1. They go down to Egypt for help. Instead of trusting alone in God and saying, God will turn up for us, they're making sure by going down to Egypt for help, Instead of relying on God's promises, do you notice they're relying on horses? They're trusting in chariots. These were the, the best military hardware of the period, the Blackhawks, the F-17s, the heavy-duty tanks of the era. They are trusting in these things. Why are they trusting in these things? Look what he says. Why are they doing it? Because they are very strong. And the chariots, because there are many. In other words, because there's 
might and because there's a majority, that's where we're going to look. Brute strength, military might, massive numbers, that's where we're looking instead of to the Lord. And notice, here is the charge. Look at the end of verse 1. You do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So what, what are they trusting? Well, they're not trusting in God alone. They're trusting in God, but they're trusting in God plus what they can do for themselves to get themselves out of the mess. And where are they looking? They're not looking at the Holy One of Israel. He is not filling their gaze. He is not occupying their vision. No, no, they have taken their eyes off of the Holy One of Israel like Peter walking on the water who was looking at Jesus and walked on the water. But as soon as he saw the waves, they're looking at the waves. And as he looked at the waves, he began to sink. And Israel has taken its eyes off the Lord. And it's beginning to sink into unbelief. And you see immediately what's going on. That instead of trusting in the promises of the invisible God to come to their aid, they are putting their confidence in things they can see, in the arms and alliances that they can forge. In other words, they're demonstrating what we always do when we get into trouble. Instead of resting and trusting in the Lord. We see what we can do to sort it out for ourselves, to manage it for ourselves. The grammar of those opening words is absolutely crucial to understanding the text. They're relying. They're trusting. They're looking. But they're relying, they're trusting, they're looking to the wrong things. We have to ask ourselves the question this morning, where are you looking? What? Are you trusting? They were looking to the experts. And so God reminds them. You think you've got people there who can give you advice. Yet, verse 2, God is wise. His almighty wisdom is ever active and never fails. In His wisdom, He works towards a particular end, and He has purposes that He wants to achieve. He's already been teaching them through His prophet. He's been teaching them His Word. He's been telling them that these bad things that have been going on in their life and these disruptions to the even flow and tenor of their existence have not been happening by chance, but in fact have been God's way of refining His own people, of strengthening those who are believers and of identifying and marking out those who are not believers. He, he has been using these in order that he might refine them and then bring them back ultimately from exile where he will send them so that in bringing them back, the Messiah can come to them and become the Savior of the world. That's God's big plan. But they couldn't see the big plan. They were lost in the morass and fear and terror of the moment. They weren't listening to the Word of God. They were taking things into their own hands. God reminds them of His wisdom. A wisdom that, that confounds the experts of the world. Yet He is wise. And He brings disaster. The word for disaster, the Hebrew word, can actually be translated evil or disaster. And it can be used in both senses. It can be used of moral evil. God is not the author of moral evil. 
But it's also used in, in the terms of evil, of the evil day, of the day of disaster. God does send disaster. He does. He disrupts our lives. He allows misfortune. He is a God who is faithful. So when he threatens something, he keeps his word. When he promises something, he keeps his word. We must never write off God. Though he gives humanity a long leash, let it be known that at the end of the day, he will allow human beings to reap the consequences of their actions. And not only will he allow them to reap the consequences of their actions, in times, at times, he steps in and he actively judges. Unbelief, unbelief makes us rebels in God's world. Unbelief makes us fools, Isaiah goes on to say. Verse 3 captures this, the incredible folly of what they're doing. What are they doing? Ultimately, what they're doing is they're choosing man over against God. The word for man is the word Adam. The word for God is the word El, which is the, use, the usage of that describes the most transcendent. It's actually the, the biggest God word that you can find in the Bible. It means the glory, the power, the majesty, the exaltation, the sheer greatness and enormity and power of God. They're choosing Adam. They're choosing man. The very word for man takes us right back to the very first man, made by God from the dust of the earth, made by God. You're trusting in something God has made instead of trusting in God the Maker. That's the contrast. And all that the Lord has to do is to turn up and you'll see what it is, what a major mistake you've made. They're trusting in man, not God. Look at, secondly, they're trusting, verse 3, in flesh, not spirit. Flesh by itself is just a lump of meat. Gone into the mortuary, you see a dead body lying there. It's gruesome, horrible. And I did nearly faint when I first did it. But it's just a lump of meat. The Spirit is the breath of life. When the Spirit is in a man, that man lives. He's no longer a lump of meat. He is a living being. What are you putting your trust in? You're putting your trust in flesh. That is that which has no life in itself. Rather than spirit, the life's principle. And all that the Lord has to do is to stretch out his hand, and the helper, that is Egypt, will stumble, and the helped, that is Judah, will fall. In other words, come to terms with the omnipotence, the almightiness of God. It's not a theory. It's a reality. Now you apply this. You apply this principle. The way God is talking to Israel. There in verse 3. Apply that to our secular society. And you hear God saying to people. Take our own country. You have built a society on the principle of democracy. The principle of democracy is dependent on. Uh, our, the founders understood this. Dependent on the generally accepted view that this life is not all there is, that there is someone to whom we are accountable over and beyond the state, over and beyond society or culture itself, that there is an ultimate source of providence or, 
or, or God. All of them, whether they were believers or unbelievers, believed in the same thing, that there had to be this outside, this outside power force personality that had to be the God image. The idea that we were accountable beyond ourselves. And all of them agreed. Many of them in writing agreed that once people stop believing in God, democracy itself would be under threat. Our society is facing that today when God is being pushed out of every area of life. It's, it's not just for our sakes. It's for the world's sake that we remember that God has to be acknowledged. But of course, it's got particular relevance here to the church, the church at large. What happens when the church, when it finds itself under threat, the church is under siege, abandons God by, oh yes, believing in Him, reciting the creeds, acknowledging Him, but practically looking around at the world around to find out how it can find wisdom and how it can make adjustments in order to maintain its credibility in society and its credibility in the eyes of the world. We're willing to ditch everything. Let's ditch a historical Adam. Let's ditch creation. Let's ditch the supernatural. It's happened before. It's happened again. It will always happen as the church succumbs to the temptation of Jacob and Judah here in Isaiah. And it's a failure of faith. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. And it applies, this principle applies to our own Christian lives. In our catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asks the question, what is God? The answer is probably the best answer anywhere of what God is. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Think about that. What is God? Think about what God is. A spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. Think of that God being on your side. Think of that God being for you. And see the sheer folly of thinking that you can look elsewhere and find anything that matches that in terms of security and in terms of finding an ally. And in the difficulties of my life when I'm hurting, when I need a better job or I need greater income or I need a nicer set of friends or I need the cure for the common cold or, or whatever it is when I'm feeling on my own, when I'm feeling isolated, when I'm feeling that I'm lost in the crowd, when I'm feeling that everything is going against me and the things that I've built up over the years are collapsing in front of my eyes. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? No one else will give me the security and the peace than this great God whom I've come to know. Holiness, or unbelief rather, makes us fools. Thirdly, unbelief makes us idolaters. We saw in verse 6 that what was needed is repentance. Turn to him. Come back to him. Turn round. Come back to him from whom people have deeply revolted. To turn round means, of course, to move from unbelief to belief, from trusting other things to trusting the Lord alone for help. 
Turning around means that I am more afraid of God than I am about the things that make me scared. Fear him, you saints, and you will then have nothing else to fear, the hymn writer wrote. And the reason that he calls them to repentance is based on the certainty of a day, a day that's coming, a day in the future. The day of the Lord, the final day of history, in that day, verse 7, everyone will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which their hands have skillfully made. On that day, everybody, no matter whether they're believers or unbelievers, on that day there will be no place left for unbelief. In that day, everybody will cast away their idols. You see, biblical faith reminds us that we're not simply limping along from crisis to crisis. We're not simply caught up in our minor local difficulties. We are all of us, men and women, boys and girls, Christian, non-Christian, believer, unbeliever, everybody in this room, everyone watching by webcast, every one of us in this city, every one of us is getting ready for a day that's coming, a day in court. A day when we will stand before God. A day that will determine where we will be 50 billion years from now. All of life is orientated to that day. Men and women, if you are not thinking about that day, if you have not considered that day, I urge you, I plead with you, I beg you to consider it now. That day. That day when we stand before God. And on that day, all of our false trusting will be exposed. We will discover that we've been trusting in all kinds of idols. And that those idols have done us no good. In the Ten Commandments, first two commandments have to do with the most basic, fundamental sin of idolatry. The book of Exodus does not give us any third option. Either we believe in God through faith, or we're believing in idols. We either worship the uncreated God, or we worship some created thing. And he wasn't just talking there uh, in Exodus about metal objects, metal gods, or wooden gods, or something. He was thinking of mental images. If I if I create a mental image of what I think God is like, and I say, to me, God is this or God is that, what have I done? I've created another God, a mental image of God. I've broken the commandments. I'm an idolater. There is no possibility of us worshiping nothing. And because we are by nature covenantal beings, right at the very beginning, the fundamental relationship between humanity and God was a covenant relationship. Today, the church is in a covenant relationship with God. In other words, God is the king and we're the subjects. God is the maker, we are the creatures. And by virtue of the fact that we are covenantal beings, we serve those to whom we give our allegiance. We are the servants. So whom we worship, we serve. Whom we worship, we serve. So if I'm not worshiping God, then I'm serving another God. The word for idols is literally no gods or godlet. 
little goblet. We're worshiping idols. Whether it's individually where I look to success or romance or family or status or beauty or popularity to get my confidence in myself or my security about myself. Or whether it's culturally, we look to the state or the elites or the will of the people or science and technology or military might or human reason or racial pride or whatever it may be, whatever we look away from God and make something else ultimate. We break the commandments. Martin Luther was uh, a great expositor of the Ten Commandments and uh, he connects both the Old and the New Testament together at this very point and he says, you know, this law against idols in Exodus and the New Testament teaching on justification, that is how you get right with God by faith alone, they're intimately connected. Because law-breaking is always idolatrous. And idolatrous is finding that you know better than God or thinking that you know better than God. And unbelief in God inevitably leads to you resolving the issues yourself. That was what was wrong with the church in the Middle Ages. They believed in God, but they believed that you had to do stuff to help God out. You, you couldn't believe in God alone. The big issue of the Reformation was not, did I have faith in Christ, but did I have faith in Christ alone, plus nothing. And so the temptation to make works part of my rationale for my salvation is idolatry. It's idolatry. I don't believe in God alone. And when I'm under pressure, if I look to how I can manage the, the situation, who I can get in to help, other than trusting and relying wholly on God, I become an idolater. So the call is to come back. The call is to come back to this one God. Kierkegaard, in his Sickness Unto Death, defines sin as building your identity, your self-worth and happiness on anything other than God. And if you take that definition of Kierkegaard, you apply it to Judah. That's what they were doing. They were looking to Egypt. They were trusting in Egypt to save them when they were in trouble. And if you look to your career to save you, or romance, or your drivenness or your addictions or your anxiety or your obsessiveness or your envy or resentment or whatever it may be. You're looking away from this God. You're looking in the wrong place and you're trusting in the wrong thing. Where are you looking? What are you trusting? Well, Isaiah always has a positive element. And I'm encouraged to read verse chapter 32 because he tells us, look, here's the hope God holds out to you. There will be a new king, first of all, verses 1 and 2. The end of chapter 31, he tells the story of the fall of Assyria. It's going to fall without the sword of a man. In fact, that's what happened. There was nobody needed to invade. Assyria just came to an end. It's one of those rare, it's like communism in Russia, just came to an end. Just one day woke up. Ronald Reagan said it was done, and it was done. And his Isaiah says, he's going to wake up one day, Assyria's going to be done. It's going to be the end of it. 
Now it's true. And its king, verse 9, its rock, it's chapter 31, will pass away and his officers will desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion. So that's the end of Assyria. The, the, the big threat's going to just disappear of the face of the earth. But behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. This is the same king introduced in chapters 9 and 11. Chapter 9, we saw that righteousness marks his throne. Chapter 11, we saw righteousness marks his character. Here in chapter 32, we find righteousness marks his government. And in chapter 33, we'll find it's the Lord himself who is the king. How did all that add up? Isaiah wasn't able to tell you the answer. But we can tell you the answer. How it all adds up is that when Messiah comes, when the Lord Jesus arrives, these irreconcilables all make sense in Messiah Jesus. Because he is 100% God and 100% man, he is 100% one person who is both God and man. He is the king. And he rules. And the way he rules demonstrates or reflects the very character of God himself. There will be no evil ministers to give the king a bad name, no bad apples in his cabinet to spoil the party. His reign and rule will be complete, and they will be righteous. And he will be, look at this, he will be, I love this, a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, streams of refreshing water in a dry place, the shade of a great rock in a weary land where the sun is beating down upon you. What is it saying? It's saying everything you were looking to Egypt to be. He will be perfectly Everything you're looking at your career to make you, or your spouse to make you, or your kids to make you, or your reputation to make you, and they fail you. Everything He will be to you. He will be to you. He will be enough for you. He will be enough for you. There will be a new king. I just thrills the living daylights out of me. And there will be a new people. There will be a new people, verses 3 to 5. Ministers often say it would be a great job if it wasn't for the people. I don't ascribe to that view. But there will be a new people on that day. You ever thought of that? There are four transformations listed there in verses 3 to 5. Messiah's people are imperfect now, but then they're going to be perfect. On that day, they'll be perfect in and of themselves. You know, earlier in Isaiah, it said that, that God had caused them because of their the sinfulness. He'd, he'd caused them to be deaf so they couldn't hear the, the Word of God. Or their eyes were blind so they couldn't see the truth of God. Their minds couldn't comprehend the message of God. And their tongues were not speaking the Word of God. All that's reversed. All of that's gone. Not only that, but God's people today are often gullible. They go to the wrong kinds of people for advice, and they trust in the 
wrong kinds of people, and they elevate, as society often does, the wrong kinds of people. You just think about politics and the media and so forth, and, and, uh, and read about what Isaiah says here about the fool being called noble and the scoundrel being said to be honorable. That's the kind of people we look to and put in power today, isn't it? But in that day, there'll be discernment. The fool will no more be called noble. The scoundrel will no more be called honorable. In that last future world, you see, you will see clearly. There will be thirdly a new era. Verses 9 to 20. The prophets of Israel applied the word of God to the people they were speaking to. We've already seen Isaiah very forthright in applying the word of God to the people generally. He's applied the word of God to the nations round about Israel. He's applied the word of God to the leaders of the nation. And he's applied the word of God to the prophets who preached to the people. There's only one category he hasn't mentioned yet. Probably out of fear. He addresses the women. Uh, There in verse 9, 8, yeah, 9 of chapter 32. These are the women, by the way, who are the wives of the leadership. They live in the palace. He wants them to hear, too. Why is he speaking to them? Because he wants them to be warned. He doesn't want them to be complacent. That's the word that's used. They were at ease in Zion. They were complacent. They were acting as if there was nothing wrong. They were acting as if the preacher was off his head, and who is he anyway? He was just another preacher. I mean, preachers aren't important. They weren't thinking about spiritual things. And Isaiah says to them, all your toys are going to be taken away from you. All your lunches in the palace will come to an end. Verse 14, the palace itself will be forsaken on that day. You've got something to be afraid of. Be warned. Repent. You, along with everyone else, repent. Be like Rahab in Jericho to recognize that time was up for Jericho and that God the Lord was God and put her trust in God and took action on the basis of her faith. Well, then in verse 15, the tone changes mid-sentence. Mid-sentence. There is a sea change. Everything changes. God's promises will come to fruition. There will be devastation until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. He's looking forward, you see. Looking forward to a time when God will do something brand new. When He will pour out His Spirit. That's another way of telling you this is going to be totally God's doing. This This is God's doing and it's God's gift. It's a new era, but it's not a new era conceived of and created by man. It is given by God. In chapter 11, it's the Messiah himself who is full of the Spirit. Here, the Spirit is shared with others. And that prophecy, that promise, began to be fulfilled in history on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out upon the apostles, initially, on that day. And the glory of God that had departed from the temple came and alighted 
over the heads of those who were gathered to indicate that here the temple of God, where the glory of God could be found, had arrived again. The glory that had departed before the exile came back on the day of Pentecost. The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Church of God, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There is no cloud of there is no cloud outside over hanging over 10th Pres. And tonight there will be no great tongue of fire over this church. But let me tell you, in this room, as the angels and archangels and demons of hell see it, there is resting over this congregation and over every believer in this congregation. The spirit of glory and of God, the Shekinah glory, rests upon you. The spirit came at Pentecost. And the Spirit's presence is here in the hearts of everyone, every believer here whose gift of faith came from the Spirit, whose assurance that you are a child of God adopted into His family came from the Spirit of God, whose truth you have here in your Bible before your eyes and now in your ears, this truth comes from the Spirit of God. And whatever change you've made, whatever transformation has begun in you comes from the Spirit of God. Complete reversal. This is what it will be ultimately. He's looking beyond Pentecost, beyond even today. He sees the beginning, perhaps, of Pentecost going on today. Here is its fulfillment, its ultimate fulfillment. In the new heavens and the new earth, my people will abide in a peaceful habitation in secure dwellings, in quiet resting places. This is what they'd wanted. This is why they were afraid of the threat of Assyria. This is why they looked to Egypt. They wanted this. But guess what? The day the Spirit comes, God gives them Himself what they sought in the wrong places. Verse 17, the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the Result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. The very thing they, thought they sought and could not find. The peace, the quietness, the confidence, the total well-being that they could never find. Even with Egypt shoring them up, even with the world on their side, they will have ultimately. Ultimately, when the day breaks and the shadows flee away and we see the king. Where are you looking? What are you trusting? Are you looking away to Jesus? Can you sing as Christine sang earlier, just give me, give me Jesus. Above all earthly powers, above all earthly alliances, above all earthly things, give me Jesus. Let's pray. Father, will you pour your Spirit upon us, we ask, and give to all of us in this room the consciousness that we are your children, the assurance that we are the sons and daughters of God, and the inheritors of the new heaven and the new earth. And in the midst of all the things that threaten our peace and threaten our joy and threaten our security, threaten our sense of our own identity, 
Help us to look not at ourselves or at other people, but to look to him whom our souls love and in whom we trust. In his strong name we pray. Amen.